0: Ben, salut à tous les fans de sport automobile et de Formule 1 en particulier. Rendez-vous sur RMC pour les qualifs et les grands prix de toute la, la saison, comme depuis 7 ans maintenant. Euh, mais je suis certain que si vous êtes sur ce website, vous êtes des connaisseurs et donc vous savez que nous avons rendez-vous sur RMC. Salut à tous.
1: There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula 1.
2: half dozen, to win. I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. You
1: no, call No, you want to the good work, Stephen, and there you have it, there you go. Hello, this is Desiree for F1Weekly.com. I'm your in-depth correspondent. Let's go. to Steve. Welcome to F1Weekly.com. My name is Mark Rogers. I'm the host of the program. I'll be joined by Nasser Hamid, my co-host. This is podcast number 968, December 5th.
2: 2022, Nasser. Thank you, sir. Ciao, ciao from Benotto. Tata from Braun. And we say goodbye to Patrick Tombe. It's been quite a week, uh, Mr. Rogers. Back to you now. Thank you, Nasser. On today's program, five polls, two
1: Grand Prix wins. Patrick Tombe passes away at 73. DC says era of max domination could be already over, and Aston Martin's new factory is ready to deliver for, yes indeed, and machismo. And, just a reminder, we need you to order your new Motorsports Memories 2023 Formula 1 calendar as soon as possible. All you have to do is go to the F1 weekly Front page, click on the merchandise tab, and boom, you're right there. Please. This helps F1 Weekly live. It's like mouth to mouth. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we also need your contributions to keep this program on the air. Just click on the support F1 Weekly tab. You know, you want to NAS. Welcome to the studio.
2: How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. You know, I was very sad to get the news about Patrick Tombe. You know, we did an interview with him once. Uh, I have exchanged emails with him several times and, you know, met him quite a few times. So that was very sad. And then, of course, it was expected. But you always feel bittersweet when you hear somebody's leaving. And there was Mattia Benotto leaving Ferrari and then. Ross Braun has departed from the Formula One scene. What a career he had. And uh, I understand Mr. Rogers is very happy on the left course because his team from his Shangri La is advancing to the Maginot line. <laughs>
1: Sacré Bleu tous les jours. Yes. Uh, we went past Poland pretty quickly to 0. So, indeed, and let's not forget, Nasser, not only does France advance, but the 49ers advance. And Jimmy G, yep, he went down. It looked like Frasia. Down goes Frasia. But we now have Brock Purdy to take us all the way to the promised land, Nasser.
2: Very good, sir. Very good. And I've been watching the games also. Not quite. Uh, not in their entirety, but I'm enjoying. I love global competition, and uh, who do you think will make it to the finals? Oh, we know what's going to happen, folks. France and Brazil. (laughs) Mamma mia! 1998 all over again. Welcome to my world, Nasser. Mm, Okay, that's good. Glad you're so happy. Well, you know, we got uh, no motor racing, at least no Formula One, so we need to keep ourselves busy, and I was just looking at the schedule... Of the UAE Formula 4 Championship. The first race is like um, five, six weeks away, and the you inner know, is coming up, which means Daytona 24 hours is coming up. So, you know, um, we have less than 30 days before international military racing begins all over again. Well, sir, let's talk the big news. The prancing cat is out of the bag. Signor Mattia Benotto says bye bye to his employer of 28 years. I think Chairman of Fiat John Elkan, gave him the courtesy of resigning instead of sending Western Union men with the message, your services are no longer required to his palatial mansion in Maranello. Binotto, like Clara Gazzoni, is Italian-speaking Swiss. He was the big cheese in their engine department before Scuderia said Arrivederci to Arriva Bene and promoted him, there are already reports saying Benotto may land after his gardening leave at Audi. Audi slash Sauber. Now this is the deal. Ferrari said they will announce replacement next month. If Frederick Verser, now at Sauber, gets Benotto's job, it will confirm my suspicion that this was a palace coup led by the young ambitious. Prince Charles of Monaco, with the help of Napoleon of Motorsports, Monsieur Nicolas Tot, What say you? You know, the big N. We know what the big N stands
1: for, and it's out there, especially in Paris. It's important, and indeed, it stands for Nicolas Tot. We need back-taught influence, and if Nicolas is there, that means Jean will be there, and certainly... If anybody wants to know, because f One Weekly is out there investigating, Jean Tut has lunch every day at Maxime's in Paris.
2: Yes, and uh, Christian Horner made an interesting comment that uh, he will be re- working or racing against like the 8th Ferrari team boss in the time he has been at Red Bull. So they do have this uh, Willy Horton revolving door. People are coming and going. Uh, people bringing their own cronies, which, you know, do happen at this level of stuff. But they need some stability to raise successfully in the community. So uh, who do you think they will take? Do you think Frederick Wessel will get there? I don't know, but I mean, they're already
1: asking if Christian Horner is going to leave Red Bull to go to Ferrari. Obviously, he's been there since the beginning in 2005, and I don't see Christian Horner even being able to pronounce Ferrari correctly. So I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, we could have a surprise. Vassar is definitely Ed machismo in the line of succession. But listen, folks, I do have good news. By the way, the effort that they put into the 2022 marinara sauce did pay off. They won the marinara championship in Marinello at the county fair. So not all is lost. Listen, they've been going through the same rigmarole every couple of years, new commander-in-chief. They get him from Marlboro or other parts of the big umbrella. But I think this time they might surprise. We're all expecting Tot, Vassar, the Familia, the Mafia of Marinello. But it could it could be some Something completely different. I am predicting, Nasser, that... Are you ready? Yes, sir. Elon Musk will be team principal at Ferrari in 2023.
2: You know, I think who would be a good uh, show person for them? Very emotional, very devoted, very Italian. Jean Alessi.
1: <laughs> He'd cry every day.
2: Yeah, and he will bring new motivation every day, too. So it'll be interesting. So I will be very surprised... If Frederick Wessler does not get this job, I will be very, very surprised. But we'll keep an eye on this and see what happens. They do have a beautiful car, and the team has such a, your favorite word, pedigree in motor racing, that it will be nice to see them win a championship. Now, you mentioned that uh, according to DC, Max's dynasty is over. Why would he say that, and do you agree with him?
1: Well, the problem is, it's not 2014. It's not the planets lining up, things have changed, the rules have changed, and they're very fluid right now. Things are going to be very bizarre, not going to make everybody happy, but one thing for sure, getting a great car to dominate for eight years, those planets lined up once for one guy.
2: No, that, that that's not true. That's not true. They lined up for many other drivers.
1: Well, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the future, not not Michael or other machismos. I'm just saying that those days are over. And yes, I sort of believe that Max's domination, even though the wind tunnel reduction by the FIA for punishment is only 10%, that 10% could be five-tenths on the track. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to see... And what we expect to see billions and billions of dollars working to bring El Machismo and Aston Martin to the forefront.
2: Time will tell how it works out, but I stick to my previous uh, statement that among the crop we have today, people who have competitive cars, um, there are only one or two people who can really beat Max to the championship in a somewhat Equally competitive cars, you can never have two cars exactly the same, not even in the same team. But, you know, for the uh, most of the drivers out there, they will need a car, I would say, bare minimum, half a second or more faster than Red Bull Bakaj. Because, uh, because if Nando was bringing six tenth in 2007 to McLaren, I think Max is bringing a wee bit more. So this guy is, whether you like him or not, he is an incredible racing uh, phenom. And uh, the only problem with Max is he's just damn fast. That's what it is. But we've seen these things before when new blood comes into the, through the pipeline. I don't want to take any names, but you know who they are. You know, people come and make a splash. And next thing you know, there's, you know, slaughter on every avenue. But it's good to see, as much as we all want competition, it's always, you know, I remember, um, I think it was, I believe it was the 1988 Italian Grand Prix was happening, and uh, Phil Hill uh, was one of the TV, you know, guest commentators, and he made a comment that, you know, he's surprised that in this day and age of so much technology and how technology can move around quickly, that one team can be so dominant and had Sena won that race they would have the immaculate season like don shula but it did not happen so i i think with all these changes we're still gonna see a long line of wins by the very top cream rises to the top A uh, kind of drivers and max is definitely he is the not only the poster child of uh, that but he's like the print shop poster boy Incredible, so I, I'm enjoying it. I mean, it will be. I would prefer, you know, battles in the early stages. He had with Charles Leclerc and last year with L.C.H. It will be nice to have that, but you know, we'll see. But I think Max will definitely prove uh, D.C. wrong. That's just my take on this. Okay, sir. Next, we move on to the Duke of Double Diffuser, Mister Ross Braun. He is walking away from motor racing, and according to him. He will now be an F1 fan, watching races from his sofa. What a great career he had. His professional career started at the British Atomic Commission, but it was in the fast lane of Formula 1 that he went nuclear, totally destroying the competition at Ferrari with Red Baron in the cockpit, and then his own one-hit wonder, Braun GP. The double diffuser and JB bringing home kidney pudding with bangers and mash. After selling his team to Mercedes, this was pretty interesting. He did not like the way Toto was talking to him or telling him to talk to Nicky Lauda any time Ross would ask about his position in the future with Mercedes. And when he would go to Nicky, Nicky would say, you need to talk to Toto. So he departed and boarded his yacht and did a Magellan with his family. You know, he went on round the world uh, sailing tour with his entire family So that was very exciting he also worked here in the u.s um, with the Haas original Haas uh, Carl Haas uh, Lola F1 program and if you ever see him uh, during the 94 95 season when he was with Benetton uh, with Michael Schumacher it's interesting how young all these people are and how big they became together so that's very good we wish him well in retirement and this is my big hope that Mr. Braun, now that he will have some time on hand, will one day meet F1 Weekly at Mr. Brazier's pub in jolly old England so we can have some chat about motor racing and all the great things he has done and all the great people he has raced with. So that will be interesting. Would you like to say anything about Mr. Ross Braun, sir? Well,
1: obviously phenomenal. I
2: mean, wow, what
1: a career and obviously... And not only that, but he worked at Jaguar and Le Mans program. I mean, great motorsports heritage. He always knew what he was doing, very confident, and always
2: had a plan. So, yeah. Talking of the Jaguar sports car program, that silk cart color was beautiful. And I remember Ross Brown saying in an interview, he designed that car or was, you know, mainly responsible for it he said that car was basically a formula one car with a sports car body so this guy is bad news for the competition okay sir uh, now to the sad news um, from the i think it was over the weekend patrick dombey driver who took over car number 27 after the passing of his friend Gilles villeneuve has passed away he has been suffering from parkinson's disease for some years Phil Hill was also a victim of this disease, unfortunately. You know, I first met uh, Patrick in Barcelona at the 2008 Spanish Grand Prix, where we interviewed him. And, you know, we'll play this interview a little bit later in the show, and I'm very pleased to say that this interview was arranged by one of the original listeners of um, F1 Weekly. That was very, very cool. Uh, Patrick's son, Adrian, was competing in Formula BMW Europe that season. And this was will uh, be my everlasting memory of uh, Patrick. After his son Adrian won both races, Patrick asked me, "What do you think?" So I said, "You know, comrades and this is very impressive." And he said to me, showing time well spent in the U.S. while studying in Colorado and winning two Can-Am championship. He said, "Give me the real shit, not the bullshit." So I had to tell him that was the real shit, you know. And, uh, you know, Adrian went on to race in Formula 3. He raced in DTM, and he's still racing in tin tops in Europe. Uh, then we also had a chat at Laguna Seca when he was invited to race in Toyota. It was like a celebrity pro type of race at Laguna Seca. I think you were there that day. This was the race which was won by Timo Glock. Were you there when Timo Glock came and drove the Toyota and won the race? I don't remember anything, Nasser. Okay. I also met Patrick at the uh, 2007 Pau Grand Prix, where he was signing his book with Miss France. We had a nice chat, and I'm very pleased to say he gave me a discount on his book and also signed it. Like I said, we'll play the interview um, later, but later in the show. And Patrick's day of days came at Imola in 1983, driving Gilles Ferrari, and we all know what happened there in 1982. Any thoughts you have on Patrick
1: Dombay, sir? Great guy, and one of the last of the real gentleman drivers. Super nice guy, including uh, he was a mayor for a little town in Provence. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but a really wonderful person, approachable, loving, and when you think of him with Prost and René Arnoux, the francophilic wonders of the world.
2: Yeah, the town was uh, Le near Cannes, And uh, after racing, you know, Formula One, he did some sports car racing, took part in a couple of Dakar rallies also, uh, which was interesting. And then, you know, we'll let him tell his story in the interview. Okay, sir, so shall we move on? Please. Okay, this is interesting. Formula Two driver goes semi-hagar. 20 year old belgian formula 2 racer man i'll tell you in this day and age of social media you're never safe even the past is dragged on for the world to see so anyway 20 year old belgian formula 2 racer amari cordiel has lost his license over a video of him speeding and this was posted on tiktok The video was posted two years ago and apparently showed him doing 111 miles per hour on a street with a 31 miles per hour uh, in his hometown of Temse in Belgium. Uh, He was fined over 3,700 US dollars. I'm not sure if he sang our favorite song.
0: I'm sorry,
1: so sorry.
2: But he can reapply to get a new license in six months. Good news for his fans is that Formula 2 does not require racers to have a driver's license to compete. Just bring a couple of millions and that is your license to thrill and travel to destination cities like Baku, Doha and Jeddah. A dream come true for Vasco da Gama. And but wait, there's more. This was my favorite um, news story from the last week. Gunter Steiner is going to be the Shakespeare of Speed. Have you read your book already, sir?
1: My uh, two rupees are in the mail.
2: Very good. Gunter Steiner is coming out with this book next year. Title is Surviving to Drive, about the team's epic 2022 season. Full of highlights, Mazepin sent to the Ukraine front. Make replaced by Hulk, a sponsor with real money, MoneyGram. And of course, team's first ever pole position, courtesy of a very surprised K-Mag. The book will be published by Penguin, who else? And will be available next April. Now, this is interesting. There will be 304 pages. That is more pages than points scored by the team in their time in F1. What what is your long-term take on this team? I think it's interesting.
1: I mean, they're hanging in there. Haas could have sold... A couple of years ago, the Ferrari package is good. They still have a good deal with Ferrari. And apparently Steiner thinks the new Ferrari motor is el bomba. So, I you know, I like Steiner. I, I like his style. You know, he's not a butt-kissing, boot-licking machine. That is very
2: true. Very true. And I think for 2023, they have a decent pair of drivers. But then again, you know. You can have the bus driver, and if you don't have the package, no delivery. And let's see what billions and billions of dollars can produce in terms of a competitive package at Aston Martin. And yet they're going to have, uh, what shall we call him, Jose Bon in the car? Machismo. It's
1: going to be awesome. I'm telling you, man, he's going to have the funny watch. He's going to have the the, the spray, you know, on the back of the car. The oil slick the spinning. <laughs> I'm telling you, Fernando as James Bond is perfect.
2: One thing I am sure, and it will be nice if he will prove me wrong. One thing that I'm sure is he is going to make Lance Stroll think about being a Formula One driver. He might go to Club Met with his fellow Canadian, Nicholas Latifi, after the 2023 season. Man, I'll tell you, if uh, Nando is like constantly half a second faster than him, then I think Lawrence will be well advised to put in a competitive driver in the uh, second seat. But, you know, it's his team he can do whatever he wants. Okay, sir. Now, next item, kind of confusing, but Williams, California dreaming on such a winter's day, thanks to failed rocket launch now this is not sure how this happened Williams is not based in the u s and nor is the their previous sponsored rocket or rocket whatever they are called so in the United States district Court for the Central District of California judge miss Christina Snyder ruled on December first that rocket is liable to pay listen to this twenty six million two hundred and twenty thousand ninety four british pounds and 25 what do they have shilling or cents or whatever they have there uh to williams that is about 32.2 million us dollars in plain simple english rocket must also pay over a million pounds to cover williams legal costs i'd like to know how this thing came to the us courts but one thing is very interesting you know some years ago through one of the drivers i was uh, you know t- chatting with Some years ago, I met uh, an attorney based in uh, San Francisco. And he was the attorney for, at that time, what was known as uh, Toro Rosso. And I asked him, how did this thing work out? He said, what happened? He was originally doing some work for FIA, Max Mosley. And then, you know, of course, he was dealing with all the teams. And then uh, Toro Rosso at that time asked him to, you know, be his lawyer, their lawyer also. So it's interesting. Uh, Do you think Rocket will pay this money, such a big amount?
1: There will be an appeal, but they will eventually. They're a very successful company. They advertise tremendously in the United States, and they want to continue doing that. So the best thing to do is to pay up and shut up.
2: Yes. And you say this while enjoying a can of rich energy drink, right?
1: Exactly. They make a really good michelada.
2: You know, shortly before they announced their sponsorship with uh, Haas F1, I saw him walking with another uh, of, of our favorites, uh, Claire Williams and the um, Formula 1 paddock at Austin. And this guy is really should be on the cover with ZZ Top or ZZ Top in England. Okay, sir. So now a very interesting news. Autosport Awards. You know, this is a magazine I've been reading for like 50 years now. Anyway... A very good magazine, and they named a driver, international driver of the year, and shocking, it was Max Verstappen. So this guy is rocking and rolling big time. And Mr. Roger Penske was awarded gold medal for lifetime achievement and contribution to the world of racing. And this is the gold medal thingy they started, I think, last year, and the first recipient was your favorite, Jean Todd. Mr. Penske's team has won in Formula 1. Indy cars, stock cars, Can-Am, Trans-Am. And like Victor Khayyam, he liked Indy 500 so much, he bought the track and the series. He is also chairman of Penske Auto Group, which is one of the largest auto groups in the United States. And they own dealerships in England and other countries also. Not bad for a man who was selling Impalas in 1965 at a Chevy dealership in Philadelphia, PA. In 1965. Sir, have you seen um, pictures or video of Roger Pensky lately? No, I have not. He is really showing his age now. You know, he's up there, I think, in mid-80s. But what a tremendous, tremendously successful businessman. I mean, what he has done in racing. I don't need to say anything. It's just incredible. Okay, sir, Mr. Rogers, please pay attention. A rose by any name may not smell the same after this. And I really think and recommend, and if you need a wake-up call or reminder, I can do that. You need to cancel all your appointments for this event. NASCAR will have a float in Pasadena's Rose Parade on January 2nd. I mean, what a way to celebrate New Year. This is the reason high-definition TV was developed. I just wonder if this will be the first time we will see a caution in the parade. Are you ready for this, sir?
1: Well, the first thing they're going to call is, is phantom debris. That's going to be out there on, 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 the, on the circuit. It'll cause an issue. And then we'll have later on Dana Patrick showing her legs up the road in Pasadena, causing the old women to go and quiver in the corner. So we're going to have some issues. We're going to have some safety problems. But as long as nobody throws a shoe into the parade, safety Will remain number one.
2: That is, someone shoot. and then here comes Danica, and bam, mm. drop kicks it. And here is Danica's radio. That I hit.
1: Okay.
2: See that window gets open because she carried too much speed into the corner. She was able to hold on to the spot though, and it looks like there's no
1: serious damage. Something's wrong with my steering. Yeah, she's, now she is becoming preoccupied with things. I know this is, may sound silly, but we didn't have this issue until the shoe went up underneath the car when she hit it. The, I, I don't see how that could I'll have tell you affected something. the steering. Marty, I've hit everything there is to hit in this sport. I've never hit a shoe. Yeah. And I'd love to play off experience, but I can't honestly say like, I, I mean, I don't know what to yeah, tell you. It's I a know.
2: very, very unusual set of circumstances. But Oh, man. Like the chip was traveling all over the world. The shoe is now traveling from Montreal to Pasadena. I (laughs) I love it. I will not be surprised if she's on that
1: float. I'm telling you, I'm feeling it. She looked good in those short pants.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, what
1: else? Well, that's about it, Nasser. I think we should go right to the interview because this is a good interview. It's informative, it's fun, and it's exciting.
2: Yes, sir. This um, interview was in Barcelona, and like I said, it was arranged through one of our uh, F1 Weekly's original listeners. And uh, Patrick was very friendly, had a great chat, and yeah, there was some conversation before and after the interview also, and I asked him some questions, which I was not going to ask him in the interview. And, uh, you know, he had some interesting answers. You know, it was so nice when I met him when he came here to race at Laguna Seca. He was very proud of his time in America because he was married to an American lady. He, he has what he calls my American children who, who live here. Some of them live here, and Adrian, of course, uh, lives in Europe. So it was very nice, and they we're going to play this interview as our tribute, as our uh, sort of... Uh, memory of Patrick Tombe, a great racer and a very fine
0: gentleman.
1: And now, another outstanding interview from the guru himself, Mr. Nasser Hamid. And Nasser, this gentleman, and I'll
2: let you introduce him,
1: Formula One career, Grand Prix driver, intriguing
2: personality, and a really nice guy. Absolutely. Uh, This conversation, Clark, is with Patrick Tombey. Who spent quite a few years here in the United States? He was Can-Am champion twice and was ready to embark on an IndyCar career when the call came from Ferrari to take the seat of his friend Gilles Villeneuve after the Zolder tragedy of 1982. Uh, this is an in-depth conversation in which he shares his memories and thoughts, and I'm very thankful for his time and would also like to thank F1 Weekly listener Mr. Mo Manzoor for introducing me to Monsieur Tombe. Uh, these days Patrick is a proud papa as his son Adrian is now racing in Formula BMW and won actually both races in Barcelona which was the opening round of Formula BMW and Patrick also drove for, he actually he made his Grand Prix debut in a McLaren then he drove for uh, Renault also he also did a brief spell with uh, Carl Haas's the uh, 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 Formula One program he had with Lola Beatrice sponsorship, so I'm very thankful for Patrick for his time and sharing his uh, memories with us And all the best to him and Adrian. Okay, I'm here in Barcelona with Patrick Tombé. Uh, Patrick, first of all, uh, great pleasure to meet you. How are you today, sir?
0: I'm fine. It's a pleasure as well.
2: Thank you. Um, Please tell us about your earliest memories of racing and if
0: you had any racing heroes. Ooh, that's... uh... Deep, deep down in my brain, I have to uh, put the computer on uh, research for that. (laughs) I didn't expect this kind of question straight away at so early in the morning. Uh, I can come back in the afternoon. uh, Well, uh, okay, it goes, uh, if you want to go deep, uh, very deep, Uh, 1968, Monte Carlo. I live in Cannes, so it was not far away. I used to go there and... My family didn't know, uh, I, was not, uh, I was barely 18 and um, took the train to go there and watch uh, uh, Graham Hill, Jackie Stewart, uh, Jean-Pierre Beltoise and uh, Formula 3 driver Francois Sever. This is my first uh, uh, contact with motor racing.
2: Is this a race where uh, Blue Matra
0: was there with Johnny Saros Gavin also? Absolutely, yes. Uh, yeah, I've been told you are quite a, uh, an encyclopedia of, uh, yes, this is exactly the race. It used to be the old uh, Bureau de Tabac and the old Gazometre Airpin, you know, with the stack uh, everywhere. The things have changed a bit since. But this is, uh, uh, in fact, uh, the right race with a Matra engine. Uh, I, can ima- I can remember... Uh, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, the Formula 3, 1,000 engine revving very high. And uh, the smell, especially the smell of the uh, Castrol Racing Oil, which uh, used to give me stomach aches. So, yes, this is as, as far as I can go. You know, you mentioned the name François Sever. That
2: was the name that I grew up with in 1973 when I woke up to the beautiful thing called Formula One. Uh, question. Uh, your first love, I'm told, was skiing, and it was this that took you to the United States. So give us a little downhill on your skiing career, please. <laughs> downhill?
0: <laughs> going yes, down exactly. <laughs> it started at the at the bottom, and uh, it, it took the lift, uh, and <laughs> then, then, then it went downhill. Yeah, I, I was on the... Uh, a national uh, squad for the Hopeful and the uh, b team it was the times where jean-claude killy was uh, the leader of the of this uh, outfit and uh, it was difficult to be uh, in the top uh, in the top league i i uh, tried it for 3 years and decided that uh, or i had been told by my coach that i would not make it to the top and that i better go back to um, to uh, my studies which I did uh, I went uh, luckily uh, back to the States and to uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder for uh, for what uh, turned out to be the best two, uh, two years of my uh, studies unfortunately or fortunately I don't know I stopped to be involved in motor racing uh, in in 72 but uh, I, I keep some extraordinary memories from Boulder, Boulder as a as a student that was, uh, you can imagine, the skiing in Aspen, in, uh, in Vail, in Breckenridge, in all those uh, ski resorts in, in the Colorado Rockies, and the studying, and uh, American girls also, obviously. That's oh, my God. I, well, that's where I met my, my first wife, and uh, I have two American kids. So it's, uh, America is an important part of my life.
2: The first time I read your interview in Autosport, that's what you were talking about, living in Colorado. So it, it, we're both going back, me- downhill and memory lane. Okay, you were a Can-Am champion in 1977 with Carl Haas. What were the highs and lows of that season? Uh,
0: it was, in fact, two seasons, 77 and uh, 1980. Uh, I can only remember highs uh, with uh, with Carl and uh, 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 the operation. Carl Haas had a fabulous uh, Can-Am team uh, made of uh, a blend of... Uh, technician that came from all over the world. uh, England, New Zealand, Australia, America and French driver. And uh, it was a fabulous family operation, very competitive and uh, enjoyed, uh, I think, six wins out of eight races. uh, So that was a a good time. Uh, I replaced the injured uh, Brian Redman and that was uh, unlucky for him. He flipped over at Mont Tremblant. And I got the chance to to replace replace him. I got a call on the, the Tuesday evening saying can you fly in tomorrow morning? I said oh shit. Yes. <laughs> and the next day I was on the plane and won the and won the race. Did you ever bring him any Cuban cigars?
2: How do you know? How do you know that? Yes. Everybody who follows <laughs> racing uh, is always
0: smoking, so let's hear, from, let's hear the truth. Yes. In fact, uh, not the first time because I didn't know that he was such a, a cigar chain smoker. But in fact, yes, uh, afterwards I always uh, would go to the duty-free uh, shop uh, on the way in and uh, bring him uh, a bunch of uh, illegal, uh, at the time, Cuban cigars.
2: I think they still are illegal Oh,
0: okay, I didn't know
2: I didn't know that So, so uh, let's hope nobody from Homeland Security Is listening to this interview <laughs> Okay, your favorite track in North America, please Oh uh,
0: Well Sears Point is a nice place uh, Laguna Sica But they have changed so much uh, Mid Ohio Elkhart Lake I, I would go for Elkhart Lake Everybody's favorite, mine too. How about, uh, there are some very nice tracks in Canada, how about there? Uh, most sport, uh, but it used to be uh, quite a, a challenge. Most sport, uh, but my biggest memory is linked to uh, uh, Gilles Villeneuve and uh, Three Rivers uh, uh, and for the uh, general environment, atmosphere and the Quebec uh, ladies. Wow. I go back to that often. I go back to this Yeah, I'm
2: getting an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, 1977, you made your Grand Prix debut at Silverstone. How big was the challenge mentally to be in Formula 1? And uh, please tell us about the ladies in Formula
0: 1 also. Uh, That's also part of my career, yes, obviously. Uh, They have been an important part of my life as well. (laughs) So I don't need to tell this conversation is taking place with a French driver, huh? Well, I mean... With the old time drivers, uh, you can. I don't know about the the new timer, the new the new guys. Uh, I think they are more maybe uh, reasonable. Um, When you're young, you take it as it it goes. You you don't you don't. uh, uh, I see with a with a you know drawing back. uh, I I see it like uh, I was completely unconscious of what I was doing, totally totally unconscious just uh it's so hard to get to uh, to that position Uh, but i didn't realize it i didn't realize it i was just doing it and uh, one step at a time and um, moving forward and uh, it was natural and today when i reflect on it i said gosh i i was lucky and privileged
2: now you mentioned gil vinlove he made the grand prix debut at the same time same race you did um When was the first time you met him? And I know you were friends. Uh, Can you reflect
0: on those times, please? Uh, It was in 1976 in the Formula Atlantic race in Three Rivers, where uh, the organizers uh, had taken in uh, two, three, uh, I think, uh, four maybe uh, European drivers to uh, confront them to or to confront Gilles Villeneuve's talent to them. And to establish his potential, uh, James Hunt was there, I think. Patrick Depayet I think. Uh, Keke Rosberg, maybe. I, I can't remember. I mean, you would, would probably know better than me. Uh, I was there, and, and Gilles uh, impressed us all. And we uh, got, got on straight away, very, very, uh, very naturally, and very openly. And, uh, and uh, it was very nice uh, encounter. And. Uh, uh, I cherish that moment uh, a lot today still.
2: You know, I was reading your interview in Motorsport British magazine recently, and this was so interesting. Uh, This was about the time, I believe, he was driving you and his son, Jack, and you were following a rally. Uh, Tell us about that, please.
0: Well, obviously, anything that uh, had an engine and that Gilles was uh, in control of uh, had to be used at uh, 100%. And it was a snowmobile, a, a motorcycle, an helicopter, uh, or his uh, road car. And we went to a to a regular uh, rally in the wintertime in the winter time uh, in nearby uh, Cannes. And we were flying in the little back roads. Uh, and Jack was standing in the back, uh, holding himself uh, as m- much as he could, uh, saying to his dad, uh, "We were flying." Uh, faster daddy faster faster so this is the villain of the story
2: and uh, in 1978-79 you were at McLaren how did that deal come about and how do you look back on those two years with McLaren
0: uh, mixed uh, memories some fun ones and some uh, more difficult ones 78 was a, a very good uh, interesting first season uh, in spite the fact that uh, we didn't have, uh, obviously, uh, the best car with the M26, but uh, it was a great team uh, of great bunch of guys, uh, a fabulous teammate, uh, James Hunt, uh, very, very, very good coach uh, concerning the ladies, uh, again. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's not what you wanted to uh, to hear, but uh, uh, in fact, this is the type of memories I have, uh, some, some interesting moments, but obviously... Uh, uh, I had uh, done a choice at the time when I had the opportunity to to go to Ferrari at the end of '77. But that's a that's another long story. But I picked up uh, McLaren, and uh, it turned out to be a big mistake in '79. '78 was not too much of a problem. '79, I changed teammate with John Watson and uh, the M28, uh, 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 I think was not uh, a big success it was the first era of uh, the carbon fiber onicom combination uh, uh, hub and uh, uh, it was not the ideal uh, championship winning car let's put it that way and we had a lot of uh, we had a lot of problems
2: what was the reason for choosing mclaren i
0: understand you were the one who once you made the decision you called Jill and said hey ferrari is looking for a driver Yes, I was in contact directly with Mauro Forgueri, through Mauro Forgueri, with the old man. You can check on that. Uh, it turned out to be that the appointment, I was commuting back and forth in 77 between Formula 1 and uh, Canham. It turned out that uh, the appointment that we had after Austrian Grand Prix uh, got cancelled because the Mr. Ferrari had a flu or was sick or was... And I went to Charles Stewart, Marlboro at the time, uh, on the Tuesday on my way to the States. And I had a meeting with John Hogan, which was in charge of uh, the Marlboro program. And I told him I was supposed to have a meeting with Enzo Ferrari uh, for joining the team for next year. And suddenly in the meeting, Teddy Mayer turns up. And our strange Teddy Mayer in charge of McLaren turns up. McLaren sponsored by Marlboro and we had a chat, I didn't have any agent, I was doing my own stuff, uh, and that was the, 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 the tendency of the fashion at the time, and uh, he, he presented me with a contract straight away, and he said, uh, Ferrari will go Michelin next year in 78, it will be a, probably a technical year, which will be difficult, which it turned out to be in 78, uh, your teammate will be Carlos Reutemann uh, It's not going so to be such a nice combination You should team up with, uh, with James uh, We are coming out of a winning championship season It's going to be great And uh, we're prepared to pay you this For me it was big money at the time And uh, I said, sure, okay, let's do it And James was always more fun than Carlos
2: Reutemann <laughs> Carlos is a great guy you know, he's also in politics,
0: and so are you now in government office. Are you in touch with him? How is he doing? He's doing great. Uh, I always liked and discovered his attitude. Uh, and uh, it's strange for his uh, his, uh, his character to actually be in politics. Uh, I've been surprised that he was actually uh, in office. But he's done a very, very good uh, job at it. He could have been president of uh, Argentina if he had uh, wished to, to be, I think. Uh, which is very, very uh, strange. But I'm not going to be president of France. We okay. have, we have what it takes.
2: <laughs> okay. Now uh, you refer to the ladies a few times. Let me ask you a question. How was
0: Mimi Chow? And where is she these days? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. No, I was never interested in uh, uh, my uh, teammates, my friends, or my colleagues' uh, uh, wives or girlfriend. I've always uh, c- concentrated on, the, on my own. Uh, yeah, okay, she was very pretty, I must say. Okay, next race, um,
2: dijon Prinova 1979, you were in that race. Were you aware of what was going on between Arnaud and Love and have you ever seen anything like that in Formula 1 before or since?
0: Oh, yes, we've seen things like that uh, in, in, in some races last season. We've seen quite a few, maybe not, so... Crazy because the track was uh, was open for this type of stuff, but we've seen some good uh, dicing uh, lately. I can't recall one, but I, I think last year we had a we had one one or, or two China. China was a hell of a race for this respect, and I think it just happens once in a while where you get two nuts uh, which uh, have no fear of anything and uh, will go balls out for it and. Uh, and this is what racing is about and uh, yeah this is an historical moment but we've had a few since is René Arnoux here talking about nuts yeah <laughs> talking about nuts uh, uh, there are a few around but uh, I don't think those uh, this one is uh, this one is I I am not sure yet maybe it will be in Monaco but yeah I don't so I don't know
2: let me ask you a question if you know something and if you would like to share what were the circumstances that he was dropped from Ferrari
0: Oh, that is a, a question for him. I have different, uh, I have different uh, ideas, and uh, none of them have been. Uh, uh, this is a political answer, okay. uh, the politician answer. Okay. <laughs> I have different. Uh, 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 I but uh, I don't know which one is true. So, are you, are you at liberty to share some of those? Uh, they are personal assumptions, and uh, they're they're not they are not based on any. Uh, any uh, factual uh, elements, so I have to keep them to, uh, my, uh, to myself, their ESA, uh, but I have my own beliefs.
2: No, I, I understand <laughs> that. Okay, back to uh, USA and Canem in 1980, which you referred to already. At that time of your career, since you were living there and studied there and married an American girl, was there any interest in pursuing
0: an IndyCar career? Yes, Absolutely. In 1982, after uh, the uh, Formula 1 strike in uh, South uh, uh, Africa, uh, I came out of the strike on the Saturday morning, and uh, I was a VDS driver planned for the season in Canam and in uh, IndyCars at the time. That was the the plan. And I had been drafted to go to the Formula 1 race to replace Mark Seur, uh, injured at uh, Arrows. And I came out of the strike on Saturday morning after all the bullshit went on, and I said I will not. Drive in Formula One anymore? There's too much going on, which is wrong because we got screwed. We had agreed to come out on the fact that uh, uh, the super license would be out and on the fact that uh, we would be cleared. And as soon as we come out and we go back to the track, we we'll hear that the super license is in and we are fined five, five, five thousand uh, U.S. dollars. So it was an expensive uh, weekend for me because I got a fine my airplane tickets from wife to south africa was not paid by jackie oliver i didn't get my retainer but i was strong believer that i didn't want to do anything with formula one i went back and i was clearly on a, a program with vds and uh, for the, champ- the, the canam the championship and indycar championship uh, following that when Gilles uh, had his terrible accident in, in Zolder in May and they called me and VDS released me from uh, my American uh, program to go to Ferrari.
2: Um, you refer to the tragic 82 season. Uh, did Gilles ever talk to you about the San Marino Grand Prix that year? The reason I'm asking is what happened once I was reading an interview with Alain Pross, and when he was having problems with Senna. And he says, I don't want to get too bitter because after the Emola race, he said Gilles had called him and spoke like for hours and hours one night. Did he ever talk to you about how he felt, uh, what happened there?
0: Yes, yes. It was, uh, obviously we saw each other uh, quite often in the south of France and uh, he felt uh, that he had been uh, cheated. He felt that he had some values, that he had done his uh, his uh, things uh, right for Ferrari at the time with Jody Schechter in 79, remember when he could have done probably uh, exactly the same, but uh, they had an agreement, they had an understanding uh, in 82 at uh, Imola in the Samana, San Marino Grand Prix, and um, apparently that uh, agreement was not respected, and Gilles felt very, very bitter about it.
2: Uh, Did you ever get to hear the other side from your fellow Frenchman Didier Peroni, who became your Ferrari teammate when you replaced Gilles? Uh,
0: Gilles uh, had a very strong relationship with Didier, and I think that Didier uh, felt I don't know if he did, but uh, as as you are asking. Uh, he called me to uh, for on, b- and on behalf of uh, Marco Piccinini and uh, Commandator uh, Ferrari in Hawaii in the States at the time mm-hmm. to ask me if I was prepared to take over uh, Gilles's uh, 27 car. Mm-hmm. And he never mentioned anything, and uh, it took me uh, a couple days to decide. After a few phone calls, I came back. I said I agreed, I came back to, from from the States to Europe and um, we first uh, had a working relationship and testing relationship in, in Ferrari. We had two races together, uh, the Dutch Grand Prix and the, the French Grand Prix and then we went to Hockenheim and we didn't talk about anything during that, those two races and the testing in between. A month later, uh, at Horkenheim, he got very, very uh, severely injured. And uh, we saw each other after that uh, when he was recovering from his injuries and starting boat racing, and never once did we talk about it. I think we had a, honestly and sincerely, we had a common understanding of what the real situation was. And we didn't dare, I don't think, either one of us didn't dare go into it.
2: Otherwise, how did you find him as a
0: person? Well, I knew him for a um, very, very long time. I was on the panel uh, of his uh, Volant Elf uh, uh, qualification when he became a, a racer in seventy, in seventy three, And uh, I, I knew him ever since. He uh, was a strong, very strong character, but you have to be... Uh, in this business if you want to to succeed he was a very self uh, concerned and motivated and uh, he had a very huge ego but uh, yet again in this business uh, we have seen big egos maybe sometimes bigger than his but he was he was very self-confident but a a racing driver when you put your your helmet on uh, and that's not an excuse, but sometimes uh, uh, you lose sight of uh, the real, the real, uh, the real values. And uh, and maybe if he had uh, forgotten the orders uh, in San Marino that day, and uh, he made a, a split mistake. But uh, I have done one or two myself, so I have to forgive it. Forgive him. I remember Carlos Reutemann not seeing the signal in the Brazil once. You remember that? no but at the time I was concerned about my races not the <laughs> Carlos races yeah no, I, no these things happen it said um, your yeah, first John
2: when came that weekend at hokaheim where peroni was hurt what was the mood in the team Sunday evening
0: oof, heavy very heavy uh, the team had gone through uh, a big drama once in in zolder uh, a, a few months uh, months or and a half uh, before that and the the team was the team was shattered. The team was shattered, and uh, everybody was very, very low and depressed. We didn't know in what kind of uh, uh, physical situation uh, Didier was. We knew he was badly, badly hurt for both legs. Uh, we knew he was uh, not going to die, but the team spirit was low. I remember one Italian journalist. I think it's Franco Lini. It came to me and said, uh, you was always have been a, a number two in a team, too nice to go and bite at your colleague and teammate and leader. Now you're on your own, mate. You're on your own and uh, you got to do the job for the team. And the next day, <laughs> it turned out to be that, just that.
2: You know, I read and it's been reported many times that first time Enzo Ferrari heard about the Peroni accident, his first words were, "There goes the championship." Did you ever talk to the old man about the accident, or what was his mood in 1982?
0: No, you never talked to to the old man about this. Uh, you you always had uh, contact with him with uh, uh, when we were doing the collado the testing at uh, at Fiorano for lunch or after at the end of the day reflecting on the the new development and the testing I never had a, a direct conversation concerning this the sportive conversation and the technical conversation I had was with uh, uh, Marco Piccinini and uh, more for but never uh, uh, any uh, any uh, Comments from uh, Mr. Ferrari concerning this uh, this uh, 1982 championship. Uh, we could have won the championship with uh, Gilles. We could have won it uh, with uh, uh, Didier. We could have even won it half season with me. If you reflect on it, it was a, it was a, a crazy crazy season. We won it uh, in spite of all those uh, dramas. Uh, constructors championship, but we could have won it three times. With the uh, with the drivers, but I think we had a little bit of a lack of, if I must say, today, uh, sportive uh, control of the situation, which uh, got out of hand. Uh, the f- feud between Gilles and Didier should not have existed. The and well, it's easy to say afterwards. It's easy to say afterwards. Uh, But we won the the world championship as a team, as well as in 83. And uh, I think what from 82 and 83 was learned in terms of uh, team psychological, mental, sportive management was uh, the success of the Ferrari team in the 90 era. With uh, Michael Schumacher, Jean Todd, and, and a good, strong number two, and never to interfere. Even if it's not legal uh, to do so, but concentrate on one driver and use the other one to take points away from the opposition.
2: <laughs> uh, Monza, 1982, this is a race very dear to me. I was at that race, my first Formula One race, and I remember seeing you there. Uh, you were second in that race. Um, you know, René Arnoux won the race. How do you remember that weekend?
0: René Arnaud was not a Ferrari driver, he was a Renault driver, but he was under contract to Ferrari for the following year, which in fact was like he was a Ferrari driver. I remember that race well because I had a a problem with my shoulder uh, and uh, I had a a broken uh, uh, muscle in holding the shoulder blade and the arm and I had missed the uh, Swiss Grand Prix in Dijon, I had shots of... uh, no infiltration in the arm to be able to drive so i drove this race with only one hand my right hand was doing the shifting and uh, mario andretti came to that race because we almost had a third injury uh, we had a third injury injured driver in the in the season and uh, i finished second i had i would cortisone anti-inflammatory uh, anti uh, inflammatory, uh, anti-staminic, uh, shots i had doubled up size i had uh, pimples all over i had a, a reaction to the to the cortisone and uh, i was not in the best of uh, physical shape uh, but still the the car was a great great potential and finished second and we were on the podium i think one two three uh, mario was third i don't know third. Yeah, he, was third. he was third so we had uh, three ferrari drivers on the podium uh, one was uh, in a renault overall but it was three ferrari drivers
2: you know, I was watching a, re- a tape of this race few weeks ago, and Murray Walker mentioned that uh, on, I think, Saturday or Sunday, even though he was driving for Renault, uh, Rene Arno had lunch with the Ferrari team. Is that correct?
0: I don't know. Uh, uh, it's a Murray Walker comment. Uh, <laughs> he may uh, be mistaken, I, huh? Uh, it, it, it makes a good story, but I, I don't see at a race meeting something so, so uncouth... Uh, to be true, but Rene could have done something like that, but uh, uh, I don't think it was an official uh, launch I don't know if it was, I think maybe he came by I don't know if it was official that he was a Ferrari driver for the year after yet, at that time uh, I can't remember precisely Imola
2: 1983, emotional win for you, driving your friend's number 27 car uh, your
0: thoughts and what that meant meant to you and the team at that time it's, uh, well, to the team, I think it was a, a, a great uh, moment of uh, of um, memory because they all knew uh, what had happened uh, in 82 there. And uh, for me, it was a very emotional moment. Uh, I qualified third, uh, the same spot that Gilles had qualified uh, in 82. The fans had drawn... Uh, a, canadian flag on the spot saying uh, with a uh, written patrick vince per gil you had banners everywhere in the, on the track go for gil go for gil uh, revenge 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 and uh, strange race from third place go to the win with strange things happening during the race uh, big motivation. Strange things happening to Patrese when he just passed me. When I had some mechanical problems with a fuel pickup in Curva Grande, and uh, the car breaks down on the slowing down lap after the after the the checkered, and I can't make it to the finish line for the podium on time. And uh, Gilles' wife that calls straight away after and say revenge now we can it's like we can we don't have to mourn anymore you know Is I don't know it's it's, a it, it's very special
2: yeah it's a very, you know when I look back on that season it's just uh, very mixed feelings you know what happened Dijon in 1984 and I was watching this race again a few weeks ago uh, your first pole position with Renault what was the feeling like leading the French Grand Prix in a French car
0: being on pole there was a very important moment obviously for Renault for a French driver for French fans, uh, for me, we should have won the championship, we could have won the championship that year, for but for a change of uh, uh, regulation, a stupid change of regulation, which uh, uh, created a, a situation where we didn't have enough fuel to finish the races, we had more power and more fuel consumption, we didn't have any ways of knowing how much fuel we were consuming, where the tag, the tag, tag Porsche engine with... Hoss and Lauda knew exactly with a motronic system how much fuel they were consuming and they could boost down the, the turbos. So it was a complicated situation. And, uh, but I, I think we had the equipment to be competitive, but we obviously didn't uh, handle it properly. So many uh, races uh, leading or on the podium were run out of fuel, broken throttle, broken cable, uh, many, many technical problems. But to be very sincere, when I came to the grid uh, on pole position at the start of the race, uh, I was so upset with my stomach that I had a big puke. I vomited in my helmet, in my bella clava, just as I took position on fr- in front of the starter. So I had it all over my, my face in, the, in my helmet for the whole race. And... Uh, It was a tough race with Lauda on my back. I had a little bit of a mechanical problem with my brakes. I had to pump it up, pump it up, and I went wide into a a left-hander. He sneaked on the inside, and I finished second, unfortunately.
2: Your final foray in Formula 1 was with Carl Haas, the uh, cigar man, which means uh, you are probably the only driver who has driven in Formula 1 for an American, British, Italian, and French teams. Which was the most enjoyable experience? And please, this time, no politically correct answers.
0: I don't know. It's going to be a totally sincere and honest answer. Uh, I've known uh, the way the French teams uh, operate. I know the way the British team operates. I know the, the way the Italian teams all operate. Today there are German teams also, and, uh, and they operate in a different uh, way and in a dif- different manner uh, uh, as well. Uh, everybody's got their own uh, qualities and their own... Uh, 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 weaknesses, obviously. My my favorite, obviously, it will be no surprise to you, is uh, the Italian operation. It was very emotional, and I'm an emotional guy. It was very sentimental. Uh, so my favorite is the uh, Italian team. It was also my best uh, part of my of my career. The second best is uh, uh, the English teams. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to drive for Frank Williams or or Colin Chapman, I would have loved that uh, because uh, they were the most successful at the time and I would have liked to to be able to be part of uh, their uh, expertise and to know how they operate. Uh, I was attracted to that, but it never came about. McLaren McLaren was a a big operation, but it was not the operation that is McLaren today. Um, A French team, uh, obviously it's a French team, uh, for a French driver in the French team, uh, you have to be, uh, I don't know, it's a uh, uh, period. Uh, no comments on that. It was, it was a, short, a short period of time, and uh, Jacques Lafitte was clearly uh, the favorite in the team. He had been there for a long time, and, uh, and uh, everybody would be, uh, was behind him, and the other drivers didn't, didn't really count. So for me, it's an erase in my mind situation. But I had the opportunity, oh, Renault. Renault, obviously, it's a constructors' team. Uh, I was with a great teammate, teammate Derek Warwick, at the time. But uh, uh, the emotional uh, participation, the relationship with some of the mechanics was great, but the the level of uh, uh, ambition, uh, it was pretty much just a a job for them. It was not... uh, uh, did have the same kind of uh, total commitment that uh, you find in an Italian team or maybe a, a, a British team but I had the opportunity like Alain Prost to drive for Renault, McLaren and Ferrari and uh, today it's, uh, they, are, they are the best
2: yeah. um, Was it Gerard uh, LaRousse there? Did you? How was your dealings with him?
0: Yes, yeah, Gerard LaRousse was there uh, at the time in manager of uh, the team in uh, '84. he was not in '85. Anymore.
2: How how did you like how did you find working for him?
0: He is the next uh, driver himself. He had a good understanding of uh, of, uh, of the racing, good expertise. Uh, he uh, he had the opportunity to lead the the Renault F1 uh, uh, project uh, and the Le Mans project for many years. He had the uh, the trust of the board, and uh, this is my political answer.
2: Okay, no, pro- no problem. Okay, you have finished twice on the podium in the Dakar Rally and also raced at Le Mans. Looking back at your extensive and successful career, what are some of the moments that you really cherish? And if there was one race you could do all over
0: again, what would that be? Whew. The Dakar experience was something that is, is really really counts for me. Uh, uh, Le Mans, not so much. Uh, but I enjoyed Le Mans in '89 with the Jaguar it was a good race, we were leading in the night, we had a gearbox problem in the morning, we finished fourth, but that was a good experience. But uh, the biggest, biggest uh, emotional human adventure of all was the, the Dakar Rally. Twice on the podium behind the works team, uh, Peugeot and Citroën, with a non-works operation. Takes a lot of uh, effort uh, from the crew to rebuild the cars at night, takes a lot of effort from the team on board the car to be shrewd for navigation problem and, in, and for endurance capacity, for solving the, the tricky navigation situation when you don't have all the elements to be able to, to do a good job, and to share with a, the with a, with a co-pilot uh, uh, three weeks of uh, grueling times that was really, really something fun. I also finished third in uh, Paris to Beijing uh, race, uh, which was just as hard. It was three weeks' hard work. Totally different from a Grand Prix, uh, where you are alone in your car. You're the last element of a long chain of people uh, working very, very, very hardly to for that success. But there it's uh, communion with... Uh, with the elements, with the environment, with your co-pilot, and uh, you share much more important uh, memories, and you can discuss it afterwards, you can share it afterwards, where well, when you were a Grand Prix driver, it lasts an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, and uh, you only share it with yourself. And, uh, and uh, you have to be a very good storyteller, uh, or, and sometimes people don't believe you. I told you that I had a problem in the uh, 84 French Grand Prix with my brake pedal. Only know, only I know that it's true. But uh, maybe you think, well, this is, an, this is an excuse. A mechanic can look at the car afterwards, but he's not going to report that we had an, a mechanical problem. D- this is the difference. <laughs> now, can you tell us, uh, our listeners, what you're doing right now these days, please? Uh, I try to take my son to the races where he's competing in the Formula BMW European Championship uh, in the best of uh, mental, technical, physical uh, shape as possible. And this is, uh, I'm racing by proxy now, which is a new uh, experience and a very, very uh, intense one. He's doing great. Uh, I'm involved in the Formula One uh, coverage of the Formula One Championship uh, for radio network and uh, TV uh, in France, I've been doing this ever since I stopped. So now I have more races behind the microphone than I have uh, behind the steering wheel. So I reflect on all the aspect of the of the game, uh, tactically, sportively, uh, uh, psychologically, which is very interesting because I, it gives me the opportunity to understand better. The, 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 our sport because you have to analyze it when you're in it you don't see it the same way and I am also involved uh, I'm doing my community work I'm involved in the uh, local politics uh, for uh, my town hall and I'm in charge of uh, use and sports and new technologies and I'm also in charge for the state department of the, our area for road safeties now,
2: your son, uh, Adrian, we're going to talk to him also. He's on pole position here in Barcelona. And I believe he won the race at Road America uh, in last year. Is that correct?
0: Uh, he came to Road America for the two races of the American BMW Championship. And I think he finished uh, second uh, and third or second twice. I can't remember. He didn't win the race. Okay. He didn't win the race. Um, he won the last races of the season last year. He won the Rookies Championship and he's on pole for the first race now he has to take the season one step at a time and build up his championship and see how he does he's in a great team and a great preparation he's got all the good elements now with him but he needs to to do it on the track
2: you mentioned something very interesting mentally when you were talking about your son how important is the mental uh, you know like a state of mind of a racing driver
0: it's crucial the confidence and the intellectual preparation and the trust you have uh, in your direct environment is uh, is uh, is crucial. Uh, conflict of uh, personality is not good. Uh, you need to you need to feel uh, in total total uh, uh, combination with the, within your engineer, your mechanic, and your team environment. I'll tell you, as
2: a pure racing fan, I love to see the 27, the Tombe name, and pretty much the same helmet design uh, on that uh, for your son Adrian. What's his agenda for next year if you have some
0: ideas? Well, we have a short term uh, plan, which is uh, today's race and uh, tomorrow's race, so one day at a time. Uh, we have a medium term plan, uh, we have a long term plan. We have planned A, B, C, D. Uh, uh, things are, you know, planned out. As they have been for 10 years now. And, you know, you please tell him that to talk to F1 Weekly and more when he gets to Formula 1. Uh, we'll do the formal introduction at the time and... Uh, Great. he'll be happy to do that yeah.
2: thank you now finally a message for our listeners and I'm very pleased to tell you we have listeners in your country also so if you could say a few words in français also please
0: ben, salut à tous les fans de sport automobile et de formule 1 en particulier rendez-vous sur RMC pour les qualifs et les grands prix de toute la, la saison comme depuis 7 ans maintenant uh, mais je suis certain que si vous êtes sur uh, ce website, uh, vous êtes uh, des connaisseurs et donc uh, vous savez que nous avons rendez-vous sur RMC. Salut à tous. Merci beaucoup, monsieur.
1: Math, great interview. The past is the past, and now we got to talk about what's coming up. We got to talk about next week's podcast.
2: Well, sir, uh, the preview for the next week podcast is, you know, Mr. Rogers, and we don't have a lot. We, I think, we only have two things, you no, know, three things in common. We both love Formula One. We both love music and were fascinated by this traveling shoe, which always make me laugh. So next week, Mr. Rogers, we're going to do a musical medley, musical Montiel, where we'll review the season with not excess, but accompanying baggage of with nice musical tunes to go with how they had the season. So that's on the agenda. And also, I don't know if people are interested in, Indie lights, you know, they're going to call it Indie next couple of news item. I think I mentioned that Michael Andretti's team has signed Jamie Chadwick, who was the only lady who won the from W Championship the three years they were in existence. News came that this driver from New Zealand, Marcus Armstrong, he's going to race in Indie cars and he will do the road and uh, street circuits, uh, not the oval. And Marcus Armstrong, you know, about four or five years ago when I first heard about him and read about him and saw what he was doing, he really looked like somebody who was headed on his way to Formula One and he was uh, in the Ferrari driver uh, program. But as he was moving up the series, slowly and slowly he was losing steam and he raced in Formula Two for two or three years, did not win the championship. He's a very quick driver and it's one of those things, you know, you may be the fastest driver, but once you get the opportunity... You got to take the bull, whether it's red or brown or black, by the horn and make it happen. And I've, unfortunately, you know this. Um, we've had quite a few very talented drivers in Formula Two who could not win the championship. Robert Schwartzman, um, also in the Ferrari driver program, still is. Uh, Liam Lawson from also from New Zealand and Theo Porsche, Porsche from your country. So um, you get so many chances to make it happen, and then uh, we'll see how Marcus will do on this side of. They pawned, And, um, you know, I'm sure people in the U.S., American racing fans are excited that they will be Logan Sargent from Boca Raton, Florida, in Formula One. And the good thing about him is that, you know, Schumacher made a name at Jordan, Senna made a name at Tolman, even though he is not with really a top team right now, Williams, but he has a good uh, measurement, and that is Alexander Albon. If he can do a bad on Albon and be the machismo of the team, then maybe Claire Williams will come out of retirement and starts highly of Logan Sargent. So I'm looking forward to that. Now what is Mr. Rogers looking forward to apart from Fernando winning every race in 2023?
1: The excitement and the buildup when we come to Barcelona for testing and all of a sudden the acid Martin is looking extremely competitive, including ghastly, and Ocon, the French mothership, being very competitive as well. I'm telling you, 2023 is a new era. There's no LCH or max. It's all machismo, machismo, and machismo.
2: Now, are they doing testing in Barcelona or Bahrain?
1: I'm hope. well, they will test in Barcelona, but there will be a little Bahrain.
2: And they will all- the season is also opening in Bahrain,
1: right? Yes, our favorite.
2: Well, it's a night race, so... Um, at, at, actually, you know, I do like that race at night. I don't know why. Maybe there's nothing there but sand uh, if you watch it in daytime. But uh, I do like the race in the night at uh, Bahrain. So, And also, you know, the Chinese Grand Prix has been officially cancelled. And there are now reports that Portugal may replace that race. Not confirmed, though. And it will be at the Portimao circuit in Algarve. Which is very, very nice. Try and gee, what a surprise! Not designed by Tilke. Well, that means you'll have port spritzers for everybody. Well, you know, that's um, I'm looking forward, Mr. Rogers. Uh, Daytona coming up. Daytona 24 hours and the qualifying in January, and then uh, we have in March uh, Sebring uh, 12 hours, and I think they're going to do the WEC series also. Sebring 1000 and uh, also the uh, the indycar season opener here in st petersburg and then uh, we'll see you know what can be done oh you know what i did is um i um, through the wonders of technology got in touch with a gentleman who knows Alain Prost very well so i sent him a message and this is you know this COVID was really bad for our interview archives so I sent him an email. I said, hey, if I come to Europe uh, in the middle, and middle of January, can you get me a, like a 20-minute audience with your friend, Monsieur Pros? And he responded right away that he checked with Alain Pros And he may be in Dubai around that time, but he asked me to check again in 30 days. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to check with him maybe first week of January. And if uh, the professor is going to give me a class for 20 minutes... If I have to go there just to interview this guy because he is such a big legend, I will gladly do that. But I'll keep you posted. Please. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no... You know, I'll tell you, man, when he first tested a Formula One car, and this is what, you know, people talk about number of wins and number of championships. John Watson was there because he was then regular driver to set some lap times, and then Alain Prost drove, and Kevin Cogan, who was racing in Europe in those days, and John Watson said in an interview that Kevin Cogan was all over the place, and Alain Prost drove that car from the opening lap, his first laps, like he was born in that car, and that's a heavy, heavy endorsement for a guy who's driving a Formula One car for the first time. No surprise that he was world champion four-time. And, you know, he could have been six, seven-time champions, too, if things were not falling apart at uh, at the yellow car with the beautiful FACOM stickers. That car, by the way, 1982 Renault, which won my the race I went for the first time, Italian Grand Prix 1982, that is a very, very beautiful car. Un sacre bleu. Oh, I'm sure you will. And, yeah, if you can get me some Renault sunglasses, (laughs) that would be great, too. I'll get you one. There you go. Thank you. I'll put them in
1: storage. (laughs) Grazie, mille grazie. Grazie para todo el mundo. So, Nass, keep up the good work. I want to thank everybody who listens. Good night. Thank
2: you. Bye-bye.